The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening. It's a real privilege for me to be with you this evening, and I do mean that, to have the opportunity to share with you, and that you're kind enough to Listen to me for the next uh, 45 minutes is uh, remarkable in and of itself. I do appreciate the uh, trouble you've taken to come out on a Friday night where you probably could be doing very exciting things with your time to consider the question of other world views. Or, to put it another way, to consider the Christian faith and other religions. As uh, your pastor has said, my name is Joe Boot. I see somebody wearing a Union Jack over there. That makes me feel right at home. Uh, I've moved from England about uh, a year ago. In fact, a year and two days ago, my wife and I moved to Canada. I have two children. Uh, My eldest daughter is two and a half. Her name is Naomi. And I have a nine-week-old daughter called Hannah. So I'm a little bit sleep-deprived at the moment. So if I fall asleep in the middle of this, it's not because I'm boring. I'm very interesting. It's because I'm tired. I hope that you will uh, get something out of this tonight. Now, we have a fairly wide spectrum of people in here. We've got, some of you are junior high. Some of you are uh, university students. Some of you, I can see, are even older than that. I suspect the oldest person in the room is my personal assistant, Myrna, who is actually sat at the back, a very attractive young woman with the, with the grey hair at the back of the building. And uh, Give her a round of applause. And if you've got uh, an interest afterwards in looking at some of our resources, books, CDs, a couple of free magazines, I know that will appeal to the students, then you can, uh, you'll see Myrna at the back and she'll be able to help you with those just outside these doors. Before we start... Um, I'm going to take the liberty tonight, because I do believe in God, to pray and ask God's help as we consider these issues. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness to us. Thank you that you have uh, allowed us to be here this evening to meet in freedom, that we do not need to fear for our lives because we are reading from the Bible. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you for life and breath and health and strength for the fact that you sustain our very lives. Lord, it's only because of you that we even have the ability to think or to reason at all. And we pray that you would quicken our minds and open our hearts this evening so that we might understand better who you are, we might understand your truth, and we also might, Lord, better understand those that we are trying to speak to, those that we are trying to share our faith with in Canada today. We ask for your uh, grace and for your help. In all of our lives, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by reading from two passages from the Bible, because as a Christian apologist, as a Christian evangelist, I have to start somewhere. And the Christian believes, there is evidence for this belief, of course, but I'm just asserting it for now, Christian believes that the Bible is the Word of God. If you're a Christian... When we begin to think and we begin to reason and we begin to talk with others, we start with an understanding that our authority comes from the Word of God found in the Scriptures. If it doesn't 
come from there, we must all ask ourselves the question, where does it come from? Does it come from our own reason? Does it come from a school teacher as our final authority of what is true? Does it come from some philosopher in the past? Does it come from one of our ancestors? Does it come from somebody else in our family? Does it come from Oprah on the television? Does it come from one sporting hero or a singer or a celebrity? Why do we believe what we believe and what is the basis for that belief? The Christian believes the Bible to be the word of God and to be the truth. And so that's our starting point. That's our foundation. Now, we will go on to talk about this shortly, but the defense of Christian theism rests in the fact that to take any other view other than the one given in the Bible results in foolishness and absurdity. Now, that is a That's quite a statement to make at the very beginning of a talk like this. I'm saying to you that is the line of argument that my approach to apologetics actually takes. Now, apologetics, very quickly, uh, is a discipline within the church. It's within the church because it's among the people of God that, of course, is not um, restricted purely to Christianity. You have apologists for secularism. You have apologists for Humanism, you have apologists for Hinduism, you have apologists for Islam, you have apologists for all the philosophies and faiths. But the, the reason Christians do apologetics, we get it, the word apologetics from the Greek word in the New Testament, apologia, or apologia. We read it in several places, one of which I'm going to read to you in a moment. And it means to give a reasoned defense. In fact, we're given that as a command in the New Testament. We are actually commanded to give a reasoned defense of our faith. And the word apologetics means that we are offering, from a Christian perspective, a defense, a reasoned defense and presentation, a positive proof, if you like as well, of our faith. So when I say that I'm an apologist and that I'm involved in the work of apologetics, that is what I mean. I don't mean that I'm going around the country apologizing to people that I'm a Christian and saying I'm sorry to everybody that, uh, that they have to listen to the claims of Christianity. Rather, I'm saying that Christianity is true and I can justify that belief and here is my defense. It's something that uh, famously Socrates did back in ancient Greece. Plato tells us that Socrates who was accused of atheism and perverting the youth of Athens, offered his apology. When he says it, he offers his, his apology, it didn't mean that he said, I'm sorry, Athens, I'm sorry, everybody, uh, I have been perverting the youth of Athens, I, I am an atheist. No, he was offering a defense of his view. Unfortunately, Socrates obviously didn't succeed too well, he was executed. He may have been right in his argument, but it obviously wasn't too persuasive. Now, I'm hoping you're not going to try and execute me tonight. Um, I'm hoping that you will just listen and take on board uh, what we are trying to say. So that is, as a Christian apologist, my starting point, the Word of God. Christian locates our authority, not merely in the thinking and the reasoning of ordinary human beings, but in the self-attesting Word of God. That is, that the Bible itself claims to be an ultimate authority. It claims to be the Word of God. Now, 
At some point in all of our thinking, we have to take something for granted. When you take your reasoning all the way back to its foundations, something in our thinking has to be taken for granted. Something has to be self-attesting. Something has to speak for itself. Now, let me try and illustrate this for you. Uh, Most of you are probably very good at mathematics. I gather that Chinese are particularly good at mathematics. So you're probably familiar with algebra. I am awful at mathematics, or at least I certainly was at school. Um, And in algebra, we use letters, don't we, to represent abstractions, things that they are a symbol of something else. Now, just using those symbols for a moment, if I say to you that Y is true, okay, how do I know Y is true, you will say to me. And I will say to you, well, because of X. How do I know, for example, God exists? And I might say to you, well, because of this reason. We'll call that reason X. But then you would say to me, well, how do you know X is true? And I will say to you, well, because of Y. Oh, sorry, not because of Y. That would be a circular argument. Because of Z, okay, or Z, as we should say in English. Z, okay, Z. And then you might say to me, but how do you know Z is true? And I will say, well, because of S and because of T. And you will say, well, how do you know that S and T is true? And we will go on like that until we run out of letters in the alphabet, and then we'll have to start using the Chinese ones, and then I really will be stuck. At some point, you have to take something as being self-attestingly true in and of itself. We have to take something for granted. That is where the Christian apologist begins, and I'm beginning tonight with the self-attesting word of God. Now, you don't have to accept that. I I believe that most of you are probably Christians and wanting to hear about these other worldviews, some of you may not be sure about Christianity. And the purpose of tonight is not really for me to give you the argument for Christian theism, though I would be happy to do it, but that's not what I've been asked to do tonight. I've been asked to do something different, but I'm telling you the perspective that I'm coming from at the outset. Now, one of the apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament was a man named Peter. Peter, I hope, if you're a Christian, you do know who Peter is. Peter was a fisherman. Peter wasn't actually a particularly educated man. By that, I don't mean he wasn't an intelligent man or a a smart man. You can be intelligent and yet not particularly well educated. Uh, If you do an IQ test, you're not going to be asked questions about Plato and Aristotle or Greek mythology or the English classics or Shakespearean literature. You're just going to be asked simple questions about logic and language. So Peter was not an educated man. He did not go to one of the big Greek schools or one of the um, uh, schools of the Jews, like the school of Gamaliel or anything like that. He was a fisherman. He was an ordinary man. But it's interesting that it's this fisherman who gives a commission to the church. He tells the church that every single person must be ready to give a defense of their faith. Now, that does not mean that you are being asked to give a defense of the faith like I would give it, or a defense of the faith like Ravi Zacharias, my colleague, might do it, or you're being asked to give a defense as C.S. Lewis could, or Francis Schaeffer could, because, frankly, most of us were unable to reach the levels of apologetics that C.S. Lewis engaged in. And I certainly wouldn't want to include myself in that category by any stretch of the imagination. 
But we are asked to give a defense and a reason to the best of our ability. So that means that all of us can be involved in this. So even though some of the things we encounter in Christian apologetics are technical, that is, they're quite difficult, that doesn't mean that you and I, or any of us, are restricted from engaging in this. Now, if you have a Bible, you can open it and turn with me to 1 Peter 3.15. If you don't, don't worry. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. If you have a pen, this is a good verse to write down. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15... The Apostle uh, Peter tells us to do this. He says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. The word defense there is that Greek word I told you about, apologia, meaning uh, a reasoned defense, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Other translations say, Uh, set apart Christ as Lord. That's what sanctify really means, to set apart Christ as Lord and always be ready to give a reasoned defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, but with gentleness and with respect. So we're told a couple of things here by Peter at the outset with respect to Christianity and sharing our faith, which is part of the purpose of this evening. But first of all, we have to set Christ apart as Lord in our lives. Now, most of us believe that the Lordship of Christ essentially applies to our ethical lives, but not to our, that's how we live morally. We recognize that. But a lot of us haven't really thought through the fact that the Lordship of Christ applies to our intellectual lives as well, our thinking, that we must set Christ apart as Lord, as foremost, as our ultimate criteria for what is true as our final authority. That's what Peter is saying. He says, if you want to engage effectively in communicating your faith, you have to be clear on this point, that we accept the Lordship of Christ. And then he tells us to to be ready then, to be fit. The word ready there literally means, in, in the Greek language, to be fit, like to be physically fit. Now, I am playing soccer about once or sometimes even twice a week at the moment. And I only began about six or seven weeks ago, and and I hadn't played 90 minutes of soccer for about four years. Between the age of about 26 and 30, I had never played again, I had not played again in a competitive football match for 90 minutes. Now, you may not be able to relate to this if you're a really young person who's not entered your 30s yet, but believe me, it's coming to you. And what all of a sudden happens is that your body just doesn't seem to do the things that it used to be able to do before. And when you start, if you've had a gap like I'd had, I'd played competitive soccer in London, England, and then playing again four years later, your body has a bit of a shock, and you realize in those first couple of games that you are not fit. You're not ready. You can't run around effectively for 90 minutes and be prepared for that soccer match. That's true of sport, it's true of an exam. Again, you might be able to relate to that. The idea of being ready and prepared and fit to do an exam means that it requires some preparation. To be fit physically, to be fit mentally requires some preparation. And Peter is saying to us, put, set apart Christ as Lord in your life and then get fit, get ready, get yourself prepared to be able to offer a reason, a defense for the reason that you are a Christian. 
I presume that most of you in here tonight, if you are Christians, are not Christians because, only because somebody told you to be a Christian. Or only because you have what we might call a blind faith in which you have taken a, a leap into the darkness and you're just generally hoping that something might be out there. Or randomly expecting that just maybe, well, Christianity seems to be a, as good a choice as any in the marketplace of ideas, so I'll just do that. Or I'm just a Christian just because my parents do it for now and I'll tag along with that till I'm older and then I'll abandon it when I've got my own freedom. I hope that's not the reason. You see, Christianity is not like a superstition. It's not like, now, uh, um, you'll have to forgive me if this doesn't communicate culturally, but in England, to walk under a ladder is considered bad luck. I don't know whether that's true in the Chinese culture, but it certainly is in British culture. To have a black cat run in front of you in British culture is considered bad luck. People talk about touching wood. When they say something that they, they uh, hope is going to happen, like if they say, for example, I'm enjoying good health at the moment, touch wood. In other words, I better touch wood quickly because I might not enjoy good health. It's superstition. A superstition is a belief that you hold for no reason whatsoever. It's arbitrary. You just believe it. Not because there are cogent reasons to believe it or because you have been led to understand that it's true and valid and right. Most people today believe that faith, the idea of faith, is in opposition to reason. That the degree of faith you have, the stronger your degree of faith, the greater, uh, the more, should I say, you have abandoned reason. So the more ridiculous a thing is, the more faith you need to believe it. So people will often say to me, not really understanding these things, they will say to me, I wish I could believe what you believe, but I just don't have that kind of faith. But you know what they mean? They mean, I wish I could be as stupid as you are, but I can't. You see, I'm intelligent and I'm reasonable and therefore I can't possibly believe such ridiculous nonsense as the Christian faith. And they believe that faith and reason are in opposition to one another. Not realizing, in fact, that any kind of reasoning is built on some sort of faith. A faith commitment. The question which we have to ask is, which faith commitment makes sense of the world in which we live? Which leads us to real knowledge, real understanding, which makes life in this world intelligible? We all have to believe certain things before we can speak of reason or science or logic or argument or anything. So faith is not something which is separated from thinking and reason. We do not have to, as I understand it, there wasn't a basket at the doors here as you came in saying, please put your brain in here, you've just entered a church and pick it up on the way out. Rather, in fact, Christianity, in the Bible tells us, uh, Paul the Apostle tells us, that the Christian faith is about the transformation and renewal of our minds. That our minds are renewed unto knowledge. That we are actually removed from darkness to light, from ignorance to truth. From folly to wisdom. From futility to meaning. That's the, tran the transition that the Bible claims the person who becomes a Christian is actually making. So nothing could be further from the truth if we have allowed ourselves to believe what the secular world tells us, 
And what we may have imbibed through our secular schooling, if we've had a secular schooling, that essentially faith and thinking and being reasonable and rational are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Instead, the Bible understands faith as putting your confidence and trust in that which is solid and real. So, let me, for example, take this stool, and I do hope this stool is, in fact, solid, otherwise I'm going to look rather stupid. Faith, let's just imagine, let's talk, talk about this chair as being a set of propositions, a set of, set of beliefs, a set of premises, okay? Faith is not just looking at the chair and admiring the chair, or putting some sort of random, baseless confidence in it. Faith means, and you all exercise faith tonight when you came in here, faith is to sit down in the chair, putting your weight on that which is solid and real. Not jumping into the darkness, not believing disproved nonsense, but to place your weight and your confidence upon that which is solid and real. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was no noun for faith. It was a verb. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. That we are faithful to that which is true. It's what Christianity is all about. So that is how Peter initially encourages us. And then let me read for you now what the Apostle Paul has to say along this line in the book of Romans. And again, if you have a Bible, I'm looking in the wrong place here. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 16. What Paul is doing in this passage is describing why there are other worldviews today. Why is it that we have a mixture, uh, a lovely English word for you tonight, a plethora, okay? a collection, uh, uh, a pluralistic context in the world today? Why is it that there are a number of different worldviews? Why is it that people have turned away from the true God? Of course, I'm asserting at this point that God the God of the Bible is the true God. But this is the contention of Christ, it's the contention of the New Testament, it's the contention of the entire Bible. So what is the reason then that we even have to do something like we're doing tonight, which is going to, is to discuss other beliefs and other worldviews, other religious persuasions? Paul tells us this in Romans 1, verse 16, and through to verse 25. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That word excuse there is the same Greek word defense. They are without apologia. 
for not believing. They are without defense for not believing the gospel, is what Paul says here. Because although they knew God, verse 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness, uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The diagnosis, the position of the Bible, of the Christian worldview, is that the reason we face different understandings of reality, different religions, different worldviews, is because people historically, in the historical process, since the creation of the world, and in the present, have abandoned the truth of God for the lie, rejecting what is manifest in them and in creation, turning aside from what God has clearly revealed, living lives that are displeasing to him, and in so doing, Paul says, as they turned away from the true God, from the creator, from true knowledge, they developed and devised means of worshipping the creature. And all other worldviews and all other philosophies involve the worship of the creature. Non-theistic worldviews, that is. Those that do not posit one God, in one way or another, involve the worship of the creature. Of Mother Earth, of animals, of beasts, like in Hinduism, of human philosophies, or of chance and matter and motion itself. Human beings have turned from worshipping the creator to worshipping the creature in one form or another. And consequently, the Apostle Paul says that their thoughts have become futile and their hearts have become darkened, thinking that they are wise, he says, they have become fools. Now that's not a fool in the sense of, you're a fool, I'm calling you a nasty name. Paul is saying that their whole philosophy, their whole understanding of reality has been reduced to foolishness, absurdity, nonsense, if you like, because they have rejected the triune God of the Bible. That is what the Apostle Paul is claiming here in the book of Romans. So we should ask ourselves a very basic question then. What is a worldview? That was my introduction. My preamble, as it were, and now we will try and deal with some of the meat, but I really am not going to take up too much of your time. I do want to leave time for questions. If someone is to, was to, were to say to you, prove to me that the Bible is the word of God, I wonder how you would respond. That's a rhetorical question. I'm not expecting you to answer it now. I'm just throwing it out there. Somebody at university or at school or at college or at work were to say to you, you prove to me then that the Bible is the word of God. How would you respond? What would you say? And why would you respond in the way that you do? And have you even thought about it? Most of us 
give this matter very little thought indeed. And consequently, when we're asked a question by one of our colleagues or schoolmates or university uh, students that we're, we're with in our classes, we're bemused and bewildered and we don't know how to respond. How would you respond? How would you begin to respond to that question? Well, the only way really that we can respond is by encouraging people to examine the very foundation of what they believe and why they believe it. That is how we would begin to answer the question. Now, there is a school of thought which says you should immediately dive in by giving people all the evidence for the truth of the Bible. Okay? Now, there is a lot of very, very valuable evidence for the truth of the Bible. For example, and I explore a lot of it in my book called Searching for Truth, we could talk about the archaeology, and I can see some of you just going to sleep as I even mention the word archaeology. The archaeology that defends the authenticity and hist historical reliability of the Bible. We could talk about prophecy in the Bible, where events that occur hundreds of years later are foretold. We could talk about the meticulous care with which the Bible has been copied and how it's the best attested work in ancient antiquity. That there is no parallel of the Bible in terms of authenticity from ancient times. For, for its general integrity. It has a remarkable integrity. This has been shown by scholars who are hostile to the Bible. And in the uh, scholarly community today, generally recognizes, that doesn't mean they believe the Bible, but they recognize it as a reliable historical document that it has a general integrity and a general authenticity of authorship. Now, I could talk about that. I could talk about even the message of the Bible and how compelling it is. But you know what? The, how, how Jesus did miracles. How argue even how Christ rose from the dead. And we have good historical evidence to show that Christ must have been raised from the dead. Now, all those things are very good and very valuable and very useful. But what's the problem with all of them? The problem with all of them is that the person I might be speaking to may well have a completely different worldview to me. That is, they may have a different set of assumptions or presuppositions about the world in which we live. For example, because I believe in God, because I believe in the Creator, I believe that it's possible for the Creator to know the past exhaustively and also to know the future exhaustively because He sustains the world in which we live by his providence. Therefore, it's not difficult for me to believe, as the Apostle Paul once asked, I think, King Agrippa in the New Testament, why should it seem, he said, impossible to you that God should raise the dead? See, if you believe in God, then the resurrection of the dead is not a problem. Miracles. God, who is the author of natural law, is able to work over and above those laws. It's not necessarily a problem. The issue comes, however, where the person you might be talking to has already decided that miracles are impossible. That prophecy, because they believe in chance, is impossible. That the Bible, no matter how much archaeological evidence you may give me, even if it's a reliable history book, the idea that it's God's revelation is impossible. What those people need to be challenged to do, who come from these different worldviews and religious persuasions, is to be challenged about the very foundation of their beliefs. The very starting point for their thinking. 
So what is a worldview? And this, I hope you were expecting that tonight would be a little bit rigorous, okay? It's not going to be particularly easy listening tonight, okay? Easy listening is when you go home and you put friends on, okay? Or you stick a CD on, right? Or you, uh, you listen to Oprah. I don't know what you watch, okay? That's easy listening. This isn't easy listening, okay? This is where we have to think and engage our minds and love the Lord our God. What does it say in Scripture? With all our heart, we're quite good at that. With all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. It includes the mind. We have to love God with our minds. So we're doing, that's what we're really about tonight. A worldview is a network of propositions, or presuppositions, I should say. Now, what does that mean, really? Well, in English, it means this. Do you remember doing jigsaw puzzles? Do, do any of you, when I was a boy, I mean, I'm only 30 years old, but we used to do jigsaw puzzles. Does anybody here remember doing a jigsaw puzzle? Do you know what a jigsaw puzzle is? Yeah? It's a, those big flat pieces of cardboard that have been cut into tiny little pieces that make a picture when you put them all together. Do you remember those? Now, I know that we play Game Boy and Nintendo and, uh, you know, go boggle-eyed looking at the screen these days, but we used to do jigsaw puzzles. I can remember the first home computer, the very first one that came out in England. You were probably in front of us in Southeast Asia, but in England, I remember the first home computer. Now, what do you have to do when you start making a puzzle? What's the first thing that you do? Now, this is a question you can answer me. We can interact. We can talk to each other tonight. What's the first thing that you do as an intelligent person when you start making a puzzle, apart from opening the box and tipping the pieces out? You make a border. Very good. Thank you. First thing you do is you find the corner pieces and the straight edges so that you build a framework. Am I right? Have you ever tried doing a puzzle the other way around, start from the middle? How can you possibly know which is the middle piece? You can't. So you have to find, you have to have a point of reference. The point of reference is a straight edge so that you build a framework so that you can construct the picture. Now that is very much like how a worldview actually works. <clears throat> worldview involves a set of beliefs. In terms of Christianity, it involves a number of doctrines, a number of beliefs. And those beliefs are networked together. They're connected together to form a framework, a frame of reference. A unifying set of assumptions or a grid a set of truths, a set of truths that we believe about reality. And those truths, if a worldview is to be sound, need to fit together with one another. In philosophy, we say they need to comport with each other. It simply means that uh, my daughter, who is only two and a half, is really, really good at puzzles. Okay? She's, she's really, she has this ability to memorize where the pieces go. She can do it so quickly. And she learned very quickly that... When you're trying to put these things together, you need to have the right hole and the right piece to go into the right hole. If they don't fit, the puzzle doesn't come together. If you try and cram Thomas the Tank Engine, you know who Thomas the Tank Engine is? Uh, on top of um, Big Bird from Sesame Street in a picture, it doesn't fit, right? They don't comport with each other. They don't fit. The puzzle doesn't work. So in a worldview, the pieces have to fit together 
snug. They have to fit together consistently so that you can build a unifying frame of reference. Now once we've come to understand our position as Christians, we are in a position that we can begin to make sense of the world in which we live. If you have never really grappled and dealt with the Christian presuppositions, the Christian doctrines of the triune God of Scripture, who creates human beings ex nihilo, out of nothing, in his image, who in the process of revelation has revealed himself, ultimately in Christ, who is coming again to judge the world, who having cursed creation because human beings fell in the garden of God, is sent Christ to redeem us, to buy us back, to restore us from that lost and cursed and alienated position, and is coming again to judge the world in righteousness in which he will restore this creation. There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is a set of assumptions, a network of beliefs that forms the picture or the Christian worldview. It's a picture of reality that has assumptions that enables us to interpret reality. So in other words, you could see a worldview almost like a set of glasses. I don't have my glasses with me tonight because I don't need them when I'm speaking like this, just when I'm staring at my laptop. That's another thing that technology has spoiled our eyes. But I suppose it corrects them with laser treatment and everything else, so the argument cuts both ways, doesn't it? A worldview is a bit like a pair of spectacles. Okay? You put the glasses on and suddenly the world becomes clear. Before it was blurred, but not everybody looks through the same lenses. We look through different sets of spectacles. When I put the glasses of the Christian worldview on, the world makes sense. Other people have different spectacles on, and the Christian claim is that their spectacles blur their vision to the point where the world cannot be rationally interpreted. It doesn't make sense. And what we want to encourage people to do as Christians is to say, take hold of the Christian worldview revealed in the Bible and put it on like a pair of glasses and see if the world does not become, if life, if human experience, if the world itself suddenly does not become clear. If it doesn't all of a sudden take on a clarity. People who have, let me illustrate this for you, people who have a radically different worldview from Christians will inevitably understand the gospel message very differently. For example, in India, where my colleague Ravi Zacharias was born and where we have a very large base in India, for, for in India, many people would see Jesus as another avatar, that is another incarnation of the gods. He's another incarnation of a god. So you can go to India and tell Hindus about Jesus and ask them to accept Jesus. And you know what they will do? They will very easily be able to take Jesus and pop him on the God shelf with their other deities like Krishna or Kali. They'll be able to say, thank you very much, I like the sound of that Jesus. I will add him to my shelf of gods just up there. There's a place for Jesus among the 330 million others. I will add Jesus. Before, however, introducing Jesus, 
to Hindus, in order for it to make sense to them in India, we cannot assume that they're going to understand our message about Christ and accepting Christ and salvation unless we challenge their whole worldview about reality. Unless we challenge this idea that there are 330 million gods. I will go on to say one or two other things about this polytheistic, pantheistic worldview. We can't just go and present good news that they can then stick on top of what they already believe, just add Jesus to their God. We have to challenge the very foundation of what they believe. Now, one particular theologian in America called Don Carson illustrates this very well when he tells us about a missionary friend of his who went to India to try and talk to share the Christian faith with Hindus. And what he found was that over a few years, it was very easy to get lots of people accepting Jesus, making decisions for Christ. Why? Because within their worldview, within their framework or set of assumptions, they could take Jesus and, as I say, add him to the shelf. He became very frustrated, this missionary, because he could get all these people to accept Jesus, but he couldn't get a church going. He couldn't plant a church. Not a single church from all these so-called converts. And he went home, back to the States, I believe, rather despondent. And it was while he was reflecting on what he was doing out there that he realized something very important. He realized this question about worldviews. He understood it. And he came to realize that he had to adjust his strategy. So rather than call Hindus to follow Christ and just tell them about good news, he began to teach them about the basic Christian assumptions about reality. He taught them about the doctrine of creation. He took a smaller number. He didn't travel around so much, speaking in lots of villages. He focused on just a small group of people. And he began to teach them about creation, how God is distinct from his creation and from the creatures. He taught them that human beings are made in God's image, that they have turned away from their maker, etc., etc., how God has spoken into history. And lo and behold, the penny started to drop. Because the basic assumptions of this other worldview were being challenged and undermined. And that meant that he didn't see anywhere near as many people accept Jesus, but he did plant a church. And the church began to grow. So that is a, a practical illustration I hope it's practical anyway, that shows you the importance of a worldview. It shows you how sometimes we think we're communicating effectively with people of other worldviews and beliefs, and in fact, we're not. We're not communicating effectively at all because their assumptions are so different to ours that they misunderstand our message. And sometimes they will then reject it for the wrong reasons. Let's take another example. Excuse me while I'm sorting through my notes here. Given by a, a secular philosopher. I hope you're still with me here. His name is Alfred North Whitehead. He said this. When you are criticizing the philosophy of an epoch, do not chiefly direct your attention to those intellectual positions which its exponents feel it's necessary to defend. Okay? This is the important part. There will be some fundamental assumptions which adherents of all the variant systems within their worldview unconsciously presuppose. Such assumptions appear so obvious that people do not know 
that they are what they are assuming, because no other way of putting things has ever occurred to them. In other words, people assume things that are so basic to their understanding of reality that they have never questioned them or looked at them because nothing else has ever been put to them. In other words, many Hindus in, in India or Buddhists in Burma have never heard the perspective of a creator God who is distinct from his creation, who called all of real reality into existence, how he set our first parents in paradise, how they fell from that relationship with God and were alienated from God. They've never heard it. They've never heard of a different way of looking at their reality. Their presuppositions have never been challenged. So let me come back then to clarify what a worldview is, because you may still be in the dark. I hope you're not. A worldview is a unified vision of life. It's an outlook on life that every single person in this world has in one form or another. It's a criteria for truth. It's something that brings unity to the pieces of the puzzle. It helps us put the the pieces of the puzzle together. It enables us to do science, to do art, to consider the questions about life and death. You see, when you're at school and you're um, doing an experiment, I presume that in science at school you do experiments. At least I used to. uh, We weren't so concerned about uh, safety regulations when I was at school. So there were Bunsen burners out, you know, those gas burners and uh, all kinds of chemicals and things blowing up in the classroom. Now, the basic thing that you have to do to begin science is assume a number of different things. What do you have to assume when you're doing experiments? Well, one of them is this. You have to assume the reliability or uniformity of natural laws. In other words, that when you put chemical A and chemical B into a test tube and you heat them up with a Bunsen burner, that the same thing is going to happen under the same conditions every time. If that is not the case, then you cannot even begin to do science. If you can't assume the uniformity of nature, or the other way of putting this would be the inductive method, that is, if you can't assume that you can predict the future on the basis of the past and the present, then you can't even start science. You can't even begin to be scientific. You also have to presuppose, when you do any science or reasoning or arguing with anybody, that your brain is giving you reliable information about the universe. And that your brain is so correlated to the universe in which we live that it it can bring fruitful understanding about the world. Now this isn't, uh, it may sound difficult, but this is not a complex point. It's a very simple point. If you are just, as the secular thinkers want to tell us, atoms in motion, bouncing around randomly, how do you know that your random brain is giving you reliable information about this random world? Can you even begin the thinking process at all? So you see, when we come to do the most simple things, even in school, we are assuming, presupposing a whole number of things. Let me give you one other illustration from the Greek philosophers. One Greek philosopher named Protagoras said that man is the measure of all things. That's become the, the, uh, the motto of humanism. Humanism says that human beings, my brain, my reason, is the measure of everything. 
If I can't work it out, if I can't define it, if I can't legislate for reality, it isn't true. If it's beyond the reach of my reason, it isn't true. Human beings are the measure of all things. That's a presupposition, that's an assumption. Now if we assume that that is true, certain things follow. Human beings, not God, are the greatest beings in the universe and they have ultimate significance. Secondly, that religious beliefs, like the beliefs that you and I hold, are nothing more than projections of our human desires. In other words, you know, we're lonely and we need a father figure in our lives, so we just imagine that there is this father in the sky who gives us presents. And we project that image because that's the kind of God we want, so they tell us that's what we do, we invent it, because man is the measure of everything, not God. And thirdly, in ethics, in our moral decisions, we invent morality. Morals are just social conventions. In other words, well, in England, we might say that marriage, we don't, unfortunately, anymore, but we might say, secular world doesn't say this anymore, but marriage is a sacred covenant between a man and a woman. But what about, in, what about if in outer Mongolia or in Canada, we say, no, marriage is just a contract between two people, any people. And who knows, we maybe even need to extend it to a contract between one man and many women, or one woman and many men, or one man and a donkey, or animals. Well, it's just a social contract. Contracts can be changed. They can be updated. They can be altered, because they're just human. Marriage, it's just a human invention, therefore we can revise it, and reinvent it. That's what follows from this worldview. You see, most Christians don't realize that when they raise issues that they are concerned about, like, for example, abortion or sexual ethics, that most people in Canada today haven't got a clue what we're talking about. Why should you not abort a collection of cells that is going through its fish stage in its mother's womb. Now, I'm not, that's not my view, okay? That's the view of secular society. It says, based on the notion of randomness and chance and a chaos origin of the universe and evolutionism, it tells us that a human fetus is nothing more than a collection of cells that may be going through its fish stage which, of course, is that we know to be false now. What you see in your drawings, in your textbooks, Ernst Haeckel's drawings of the embryos are fictitious, but you'll still find them in your textbooks, I suspect. Regardless of that, that is the assumption. So why should anybody be getting upset about a woman deciding what she's doing with her own body? What are these, and this is what they're called, these religious right fruitcake fundamentalists talking about? Why do they think that? They think that because they think they are so irrational, they're so illogical, they're so stupid. Everybody knows that it's just a collection of cells. Well, does everybody know that? Is that true? How do we know that's true? Is life not sacred, created by God? Is there not life at conception? You see, we haven't challenged, and we wonder why people don't understand us. And then, let's take sexual ethics. The same thing applies. Christians say that this is the standard for marriage, and it's 
controversy has been going on in Canada, and who knows, if somebody from the government was here, I might get thrown into prison. Somebody was in Sweden a little while ago for expressing their view about sexual ethics. I thought we lived in a free country. Obviously not. We thought about that. But you see, Christianity teaches that sexuality as well as life is also sacred and God has ordained a certain way for human beings to behave and so on that presupposition we say that marriage is God's standard who are these fruitcakes from the religious fundamentalist right you tell us this is how marriage ought to be everybody knows that we're just animals and that animals do all kinds of things with their bodies they do all kinds of things to reproduce Human beings are no different than foxes or skunks or rats, from the, according to the professor, one professor of ethics at Princeton, Peter Singer. He thinks that you should be able to kill a child even when it's born during the first week if you don't want it. It's got no more right to live than a rat. Well, if you believe that human beings and life itself and the universe is just matter in motion, that you are slime that has evolved irrationality, that you are from the ooze, uh, coming from ooze, going back to ooze, as Jean-Paul Sartre said, that you are from the goo through the zoo to you, then of course, a human being has no intrinsic value any more than a hive of bees has value, or treading on, a, on, a, on an earwig, or a bug. You see, our worldview informs our ethics. What is plausible, what is not plausible, what is true and what is false, it comes from our worldview. I hope the penny's beginning to drop here about what I'm saying about world religions. Is that what we could have done tonight is I could have said, okay, let me describe for you Islam, let me describe Hinduism for you, let me describe Jainism for you, let me describe Buddhism for you. And um, of course, we could never have done that in the short period of time that we have. We can't examine all those things. If you want to understand the nature of those religions, then you've got plenty of time on your hands to get some books and read about them. What we have to understand is what undergirds them all. What is the foundational principles that we need to be able to challenge as believers? The question then we must ask of every worldview is can this view account for human experience? Does it make sense of reality? Does it make the universe intelligible? Does it provide us a foundation for reason, for thinking, for science, for love, for ethics? The Christian contention is that there is no other position other than Christianity. There is no other worldview that meets these criteria. The central components of a worldview are these. Let me give them to you, they're very important. It was my colleague Ravi who succinctly put them in this way. The question first, the first worldview question we have is the question of our origin. Our origin. If we're the product, as I say, of impersonal ultimate reality, such as the Hindu notion of Brahman, if there's just some sort of impersonal oneness out there, or if we are just matter plus time plus chance, that will affect dramatically how we view ourselves, as I've just illustrated for you. If we believe that intrinsic human dignity can be affirmed 
even though we believe that we are products of mindless forces, we are actually being inconsistent with our worldview. In other words, when the humanist or the secular person or the atheist tries to affirm the intrinsic value or dignity of a human being, for example, tries to condemn the Nazi Holocaust, I have to tell them that they're being inconsistent with their worldview. They are trying to stick Thomas the Tank Engine next to Big Bird in the puzzle. That their assumptions, their presuppositions do not comport, they do not make sense. Do you follow? That if you believe that everything's random and we're just atoms right now, okay, all you are is atoms in motion arranged slightly differently to me by chance. So if I come over as a bundle of atoms and stab you tonight, which believe me, I'm not going to do, what have I done? Have I murdered a person? No, of course not. I have shut down a biochemical machine bouncing around in the chaos. Nothing more. Do you see that? But if Christianity is true, if there is, it is possible to distinguish between the creator and the creature, if there is real distinction in reality, if there is the possibility of real knowledge, if human beings have real dignity, if there is such a thing as morality as we always assume there is, then that worldview must be false. Must be false. The second thing that Ravi highlights then, as I said, number two, was meaning. First question, origin. The second, meaning. Meaning and intelligibility. A worldview must come to terms with whether or not life has any objective meaning. There have been a good number of thinkers and philosophers that you may have learnt about, like Nietzsche, who have concluded that life has no intrinsic meaning or purpose. God does not exist. If God does not exist, they've concluded life doesn't mean anything. Well, I would agree with that conclusion. The existentialist philosopher Albert Camus took his atheism to an extreme end of the line where he talked about the question of meaning and says, if God doesn't exist and life doesn't have ultimate meaning, this is where we are. He says this, there is but one truly, there is but one truly philosophical problem, he says, and that is suicide. Judging whether or not life is worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. I see many people die because they judge that life is not worth living. I see others paradoxically getting killed for the ideas or illusions that give them a reason for living. And what is called a reason for living is also an excellent reason for dying, as we see manifest every day in Iraq or in Palestine. It's a worldview that motivates people to do those sorts of things. Do we really believe that it's money, that it's economics, that determines whether you would strap a bomb to yourself and walk into your school and blow it up? because you didn't get enough pocket money? Do we really believe that what motivates people to blow themselves up and blow other people up with them is economics? No, it's a worldview. Because many of those people believe, actually, that in blowing themselves up in the name of their God, they are gaining access to paradise. And that's why they do it. It's a worldview. So you can't go along to the extreme fundamentalist Muslim who's prepared to be a terrorist and say, listen, what are you blowing yourself up for? This is ridiculous, it's nonsensical, it's ludicrous. No, they would say, no, no, you don't understand. 
according to my worldview, according to my frame of reference. The only thing that makes sense is to blow yourself up in this way, because that will guarantee me paradise. Okay, lastly, because I can see that some of you are waning and either going out to the toilet or going out to the shop or going to the cinema to hear something a bit more interesting. One other existentialist thinker, Jean-Paul Sartre, claimed that man is a bubble on an ocean of nothingness. And the only thing left for us to do is to choose something. That's all that matters, the choice. So we must be very clear, meaning is and must be tied to reality. We have to ask the question of every worldview, of every religious presumption and supposition, every religious position, we must ask the question, is this tied to reality? Does it make life intelligible to us? Thirdly, then, morality, and I'm going to finish with destiny in a moment, morality. Let me just come back before I finish meaning to, a, to an illustration because I, I haven't earthed it for you. Let me just earth it for you. If this life and this world has no objective meaning, then in the end, does it really matter how you or I live? If there's no ultimate overarching meaning to life, because God doesn't exist, on that supposition, why should you conform yourself to if you're growing up in your parents' home, what your parents say? Why should you conform yourself to Canadian law? Why should you live like a Mother Teresa, for example, as opposed to a Stalin or an Adolf Hitler or a Mussolini or a Bin Laden? If in the end your life exits this universe into oblivion and means nothing, ultimately, why... Should we try and invent meaning and create meaning and pretend that this world does have a meaning and say, well, let's all pretend Canadian law means something. It would be like playing a game in the playground. Like we used to play a game at school, well, the girls did, uh, called hopscotch. Okay? You draw these little squares on the ground and then you hop into the squares. Most of the boys wouldn't be seen doing that, but... That's because they probably weren't clever enough or bright enough to get their feet in the right squares. Nevertheless, they didn't do it. You invent a reality and then you play a game inside of it. Now, is that what we're doing in the universe? That we're just going to pretend that the world has meaning? Well, this is what this view of reality says. Let's pretend it does. But why should you live by Canadian law? Why should you not aspire to be a, a Hitler? in a world that has no meaning. Well, there is no reason not to do so. Thirdly then, morality. How, do I, how ought I to conduct my activities in life? If I'm a victim of my environment and I'm a victim of chance, how am I morally responsible? Who is going to hold me accountable for my actions ultimately? What is my moral authority for doing what I'm doing? See, when, when somebody who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible tries to assert that you should or should not do something, on what basis should I not do it? Who's going to hold me accountable for what I'm doing? Life has no meaning anyway. We're just matter in motion anyway. There's just an abstract oneness out there anyway. At worst, I might be reincarnated in Hinduism or in certain views of pantheism as a 
toad or a grasshopper, but even then I won't be conscious of the fact, unless you can remember your past lives. What's our moral authority for doing anything? And lastly, destiny, the fourth worldview question. How do worldviews answer the question of destiny? What is the ultimate end of human beings? Is it the same as a mosquito? When I'm out playing football on a Wednesday night in the evening, the games don't kick off till nine o'clock, the floodlights are on, and I put this stuff called deep heat on my legs, which is supposed to warm your legs up because I'm getting old. The mosquitoes love it. And they, they land on me. And what do you do with a mosquito? Do you invite it out to dinner and say, you know, just have a good meal and finish? When you're ready, fly off. Now, what I do with a mosquito, at least, is because I don't believe it's my great uncle who's been reincarnated for being naughty, what I do is I kill the mosquito. Is that the final destiny of human beings? Does that comport with our experience? Does that make sense of the reality in which we live? Eastern worldviews do tend to hold, and I don't mean to ridicule it, that our individuality will either be eventually, hopefully, extinguished in the oneness by a cycle of rebirths. And finally, after this who knows how long this cycle of being born and reborn and reborn and reborn and reborn until your karma permits you to join Brahma, the oneness, when you as an individual and your very identity will be utterly extinguished. And so even if you reach it, you'll never know that you did reach it. Does that make sense of reality? Does that make life intelligible to us? The idea of a oneness. Now we could get technical. We're not going to because we've lost our time. I was going to describe for you naturalism, pantheism, theism, and various other aspects of these worldviews. You're probably glad we don't have time for that tonight. But I think I've at least succeeded in describing what a worldview is and where other worldviews, other religions, ultimately have to search for their criteria, their authority. That they too, every position, whether it claims to be religious or non-religious, is a faith position, is a religious position. You have to believe something. Every worldview, as I said, is this framework. The challenge of sharing our faith then involves not merely trying to pick away at the surface, but challenging the very structure and framework of the belief systems of the people that we're talking to. And if we even want to make our message, the good news that we have as Christians, make any sense to the people that we're talking to, to make it even a meaningful thing, like to the Hindu who just wants to add Jesus to the shelf of gods, has that person understood what Christianity is? That Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And then you pick him up and you stick him on a shelf with 330 million others. Have they understood Christianity? No, of course not, because they haven't seen the worldview issue. And in a pluralistic culture like our own, in your school, in your university, with your neighbours, we have to come to terms with this fact, that they have a very different frame of reference, different framework of understanding, and if we're to be understood, we must invite them to step into our worldview and see it for what it is. And for the sake of argument, we too can step into their worldview, whether it be a Hindu worldview, a pantheistic worldview, 
a polytheistic worldview, that's many gods, an Islamic worldview, a Buddhist worldview. And we can step into that, and this takes some work, and show them that it can't possibly account for the intelligibility of the world in which we live. It cannot account, it cannot justify morality. It cannot justify science. It cannot justify logic. It cannot justify reason. It cannot justify argument. It cannot even justify an argument against Christianity. Do you know, uh, one philosopher has put it like this. His name is Cornelius Van Til. He said, For somebody to deny the existence of the Christian God is like a child sitting on its father's knee, slapping him round the face. In order to deny God's existence, he must first hold you up to the necessary height. Or to put it in another way, arguing about whether the Christian God exists is very much like arguing about whether sound exists this evening. If you were to stand up and challenge me and say, sound does not exist, there's a problem. You're presupposing the existence of sound in order to make your argument meaningful. And you will discover as you look and examine every other worldview that somewhere, and unfortunately, if we had all day today, we could look at some of them, but we don't. We'd see that every other worldview, and they can be reduced to three. In fact, uh, arguably, they could be reduced to just two, two worldviews. One that involves the ultimacy of chance, and one that involves the ultimacy of the triune God of the Bible. We can reduce them down. There is a, there is a fog of complexity out there. Don't let me mislead you. One of the reasons why many of us retreat from wanting to give a reason for the hope that we have is that we feel we're inadequately prepared to answer these, the complexity of different people's worldview. But actually, when you look at the basic structures and framework, you essentially start with four, you can reduce them to three, and then actually, philosophically, with a little bit of work, you see that actually there are only two ultimate worldviews. And we're called upon to challenge them. Why do we need a worldview as we finish? We need a worldview to unify our thought and life, to give us that ultimate foundation and criteria. We need a worldview to define what good, the good life is and find hope and meaning in life. We need a worldview to guide our thoughts and our thinking. And we need a worldview to guide our behavior. Every single person that you will encounter, no matter whether they believe they're non-religious or they say they're practicing another religion, they have a worldview, they have a frame of reference to make sense of the world. And every single one of them, at some point in time, has done, unconsciously or consciously, what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1. They have turned away from the Creator God. They have suppressed that which they know to be true in here in their conscience and what they can see in creation. And in self-deception, their views have become foolishness. They actually destroy the very basis of our ability to know anything at all. That is why Paul the Apostle can say, where is the philosopher, where is the scholar, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so, although even tonight with this very simple introduction to worldviews and world religions, you might be thinking, this is a fog of confusion to me. Actually, it really is fairly simple. And I would encourage you to try and work through some of the apparent complexity we are looking, in a sense, at three or four different pictures of reality. And we have to ask which one provides the basis for a workable life. And the contention of Christianity is that it is only 
the God of the Bible. Everybody at some point is completely inconsistent with their own assumptions in order to make sense of life. In other words, people in their worldviews are trying to cram together, if they're not believers, pieces of the puzzle that don't fit. And they have to come and borrow from the Christian worldview in order to make sense of their own. And the challenge, really, that Jesus gives us is that we have to show people that they have built their house upon the sand. And when the rains come, and when difficulties come in life, when challenges come in life, when the challenge of really thinking through what they believe comes, the house is going to fall. But if we build our lives on Christ, upon the word of Christ, upon what the Bible says is the rock, when those challenges come to us, when the challenges of other worldviews come to us, when the challenges of our experience in life, of other worldviews come to us, we will not fall because we are on a firm foundation. That was the teaching of Jesus himself. I have a picture here, it's fallen out of my Bible, perhaps providentially, of uh, myself walking through the zoo with my eldest daughter, Naomi. That is a very good picture of the Christian life. A picture of me as a child walking through the world with my father. See, one of the things that my daughter Naomi wasn't able to do until she was taught to do so was to identify different animals. So when she walks through the zoo, if she walks through the, were to walk through the zoo alone, would she be able to say, that's an iguana, that's an alligator, that's a giraffe, that's a rhino, that's a lion, that's a parrot? Would she be able to do that? Of course not. She needs her father to tell her about reality. Because, you see, I know much more than she does about reality at this point in time. I'm sure there'll be a time when she will excel what I know. But at this point in time, she doesn't. She needs me to tell her. She needs to walk through the world with her father and walk through that zoo and learn and understand because she does not know exhaustively. Her knowledge is dependent knowledge. And her certainty about anything in life is dependent certainty on what I have told her as her father, or her mum has told her as her mother. And this is why we need God the Father, to understand reality at all. You see, do any of us know reality exhaustively? Do you know all the facts there are to know in the universe? Of course you don't. So, you might think you've got a really solid theory a really good idea about something that's true. And you know what? It only takes one contrary fact to come along and explode your whole idea. You know, this happened in science. You know, Isaac Newton thought he's got a really good way of understanding the world. And then along came a guy called Albert Einstein. And now they're looking at Einstein's work, having looked through the telescope again, and said, well, hang on a minute. We're not sure about the constancy of the speed of light anymore. Let's review what Einstein said. You see, one fact can come in and change everything. Only God knows everything exhaustively. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.